0: Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm gallery director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast.
1: International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series Behind the Artist. Each episode, will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers.
0: When discussing the art of Scott Jacobs, one singular word always comes to mind. Astonishing. When you consider that Scott takes a white Belgian linen canvas, a paintbrush, typically the size of a pencil point or smaller and some pigments and creates paintings that are so shockingly realistic that many viewers refuse to believe they're not photographs. Well then, astonishing is pretty much the only superlative you can come up with. Scott's unparalleled success as an artist over the last 40 years remains in rarefied air. As the first artist ever licensed by Harley-Davidson, and the licensee still holding the highest sales record for any product licensed by the company, along with his licenses for the Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley estates, his appearance with his daughter Alexa on the ABC television show Secret Millionaire, along with too many other accolades to mention here, Scott remains a humble, appreciative, and completely approachable person. In this segment, he reveals some remarkably personal experiences on his long road to success. This is Behind the Artist, it's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Morris Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey into the life and art of Scott Jacobs scott jacobs i'm so excited to have you finally in that seat man i've been trying for the longest time to get you in that chair so we can do this interview <laughs> the hot seat <laughs> <laughs> i'm really it's not a hot seat it's a it's a very warm seat and you're a cool guy so it's going to be a great great combination but I'm, I'm really delighted to have you here because i've been looking forward to this this uh, episode for a really long time and um, it's just been a thrill to see all the enthusiasm um, the collectors have for your work, the continual quality of your work, which just gets better and better and more and more interesting, your consummate professionalism. Uh, you you are one of the most extraordinarily successful artists, contemporary artists of our time. That's not a hyperbole. So let's start with the beginning. I think it'd be a fun place to start because you had an interesting and fascinating evolution as an artist. Um, you were kind of the wunderkind, you know, the, the wonder child. You... Uh, you uh, were a bodybuilder, right? Yeah. And you were a drummer, and you were the kid in school that like would draw on everybody's textbooks, right? You put the paper bag around the textbook and do yeah. the drawings on it. Mm-hmm. So talk about your, your childhood, your life, your family. A good well, place to begin. Born
1: in 1958, New Jersey. Um, born at Elizabeth General Hospital. Two brothers and a sister, so the four of us, uh, grew up in New Jersey. Spent 38 years there until I moved off... Uh, out of New Jersey to California. Uh, like you said, I started out really kind of just dabbling, drawing on, you know, paper and stuff. I did caricatures, I did a lot of architectural drawings and things like that, fronts of buildings and things. Things that I, I thought I might be living in as I was a, when I was an adult. And in school one time, I guess it was 10th grade, uh, one of the teachers came over to me and saw that I had drawn these intricate drawings on the uh, paper bags that were covering my, adorning the fronts of my books to protect them during uh, high school. Protect them or cover them up so you didn't have to look at them. Exactly, yeah. So she said that they were looking for a school artist for the newspaper and that uh, she thought I should go over and talk to the woman that was in charge of the newspaper. So I went over there after school and showed her my work and we talked a little bit and said that what she was looking for basically was some kind of caricature or some kind of uh, drawing or something that had to do with what was going on in the school that that week or that month. So I remember back, I I still have some of them actually, I have to show them to you sometime. I have these drawings that uh, I remember in the winter, I did a, uh, a sleigh with horses going through the snow. I remember doing a turkey at Thanksgiving one time. I remember football season a couple times doing drawings of like Joe Namath and different people like that holding the football. Um, just something that happened to do what was going on. It's probably cool to see your work in print too. SSGN. Oh yeah. 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 It was fantastic. You yeah. know, and, and it's funny though because the logo that I use today, which is basically just an S you know, you can see it on my hat over there behind you. Um, it was an S with a J through it, kinda looked like a dollar sign. I, I used that back in the early seventies <laughs> and it's still my logo today. Yeah, so that's it's really cool. Instead of signing my name Scott Jacobs uh-huh. or Scott or anything, I used that SJ logo. Which uh, has been with me for fifty years. I didn't now. that. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like Toulouse Lautrec, you know, created exactly his, his monograph yeah. when he was like fourteen years old. Well, well I got um, the, well, the, yeah. This was uh, the oldest ones. Um, the dates I have are seventy-one, so I was like eleven yeah. years old, and um, I got the idea from my dad. My dad, you know, Dallas Jacobs. He he had his uh, capital D, and then this back of the D, he brought it down and extended it and turned it into a J. So that, that was his logo that nice. he kind of signed things. And so I got the idea from him. I borrowed it from my dad and yeah. just, you know, different letter, of course.
0: You've alluded to the fact that your parents were not very supportive of people. Not some, at all. You had some real no. issues with your childhood. I don't know if you want to talk about that or not. I well, you know, I think, it's,
1: um, I think it's an important... Reason who I am who I am today was because of them. They were not supportive. The two of them were both alcoholics uh, my dad beat my mom quite, quite regularly Wow and um, For me uh, an escape to get away from them was to work early mm-hmm. So I uh, after school I would cut lawns when I was 12 years old I had 42 yards that I would cut on a regular basis and yeah, I got between five and six bucks a lawn, had my own lawnmower. And I would go and a lot of the lawns I had were all together, like, you know, maybe five, six people in a row. And a lot of those yards didn't have fences. So I could start at one end of the street and I could cut straight across all these lawns, <laughs> go back and go, forth. Go across you know? the sidewalks and the driveways. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I could cut all these lawns together and it was it was great money. I remember I had a, um, what was it called, like a toolbox with the tray and everything. And had all my stack of money underneath yeah. and all my coin and it was on <laughs> top, and I started uh, first thing I started buying back then was drums. Uh-huh. I remember buying a Slingerlin drum set, Blue Sparkle maple nice. shells. Nice. Back in the uh, early mid seventies, I uh-huh. bought one piece at a time. Then I'd buy the traps, and then as I got money, I'd buy a Zildjian cymbal. I remember buying uh-huh. my fourteen inch hi hats and my twenty one inch ride cymbal and crashes and all that. And I built a. Over a few years, I built a uh, a beautiful drum set, and I played more and more. I um, actually got a job part time at a music store called Loria Music, and had the pleasure of meeting the guys in Bon Jovi before mm-hmm. they were even known, before they right. even had a hit right. in the early '80s, and they were one of our our uh, customers there.
0: Uh-huh. So you were really entrepreneurial. Uh, at a very early age. You know, you wanted to be professional, and that work ethic stuck with you, you know, obviously, because you have an amazing work ethic now. So you got a gallery uh, in an
1: extraordinary manner. Why don't you share that story with us? That was was, uh, pretty incredible, actually. Um, In school, I I had enough uh, credits to graduate high school after 10th grade, and so my mom, who was more supportive than my dad, um, she told me, you need to st- still go to school because what else are you going to do with your day. So I would go to school in the morning and I'd finish up about noon. So I took a uh, couple, I took wood shop. I was really great at wood shop. My, my father, uh, my grandfather had taught me how to do woodworking. So we made some furniture pieces together. So I'd do woodworking in the morning. I'd go to gym. I do, you know, I took math. I loved math. And I just took a few courses. I got out at noon every day and then I I went to a job at an art gallery. The program I was on was called the CIE program, Cooperative Industrial Education, which means I went to school in the morning a little bit and then I got credits also to go to this job. And it was at an art gallery in downtown Westfield, New Jersey. It was called uh, Carriage House Frames and Wallpaper. It was a it was an art gallery, they taught people how to frame their own things, it was a do-it-yourself frame shop, and I did that for a few years, uh, two, two years, and then the woman married a very wealthy man who didn't want her to work anymore, and so he encouraged her to sell the business, and they were asking, as I remember, about $110,000 for it. And this is in the 70s? This is in like 1976. And a lot so of money. Like yeah well, it it yeah. was it was all the molding, uh-huh. all the picture frame molding and there was thousands and thousands of linear feet of molding. It was all the machines, the dry mount press, mm-hmm. uh, the saws, the choppers, all the every everything it was the inventory of all the artwork, everything that had to do to open up an art gallery. and nobody was interested in nobody made an offer that they would accept over over a few week period. And so just jokingly one day, I had about 3200 bucks saved at that time and I said, "You know, I'll give you the money I have. I got 3200 bucks." Just joking, basically. And a couple days later, she she asked if I was serious. And I said, <laughs> "Yeah, very serious." And so she said, "We'll take your 3200 bucks." But the problem was, now given her the 3200 bucks, I didn't have any more money to pay for the security deposit to take over the lease and do all the other things that I needed and I asked my parents that they would loan me the money for that and my my dad's first reaction was no you know we think it's a bad decision that you did what you did and they didn't support me at all uh, the one thing they did support though they let me bring everything that I purchased to their home so I put all the moldings and everything lined them up in the garage built a rack along the wall put the chops all there put the uh, uh, the metal saw there and all that, and then put all the mat board, the mat cutter, and all the product and everything down in the basement. And I also got the mailing list from the gallery. And so I made up these cards, and I mailed these postcards, and I did a coupon through Valpac. It was like 300 bucks, and you, you mailed to 10,000 houses. Mm-hmm. It was immediately successful. It was unbelievable. I had people calling me all day long saying they want to come over and get some framing done and so on. So I would have these people come to my parents' house. And they would actually pick out framing right on my parents' dining room table. And then I would go and I'd frame it in the garage, put it together in the basement. And then call. I'd call them. They'd come back and pick it up. I did that for... A little over a year, maybe a year and a half. And you are like 19 at the time. Uh, 18. 18. Yeah, yeah. 18 years That's crazy. old. Just so crazy. So I, I saved enough money, and in um, 1978, I opened up my own gallery <laughs> uh, in downtown Westfield about... Uh, brick and mortar. Yeah, brick yeah. and mortar place. I didn't own it that time, though. I rented a place for about, I guess, about two years, and it was called uh, Reflections on Canvas was mm-hmm. the name I came up with, because I thought that... That's what a painting was. It was a reflection on canvas, a reflection of uh, an idea that an artist had, you know, and it was on canvas. so That's where the title came from, um, and also from a Dan Fogelberg song. Mm-hmm. And so now I have this new gallery. I call up my best friend and ask him if he wanted to go into business with me. And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, we'll give it a shot. So we started working together at Reflections on Canvas. And then a couple months in, we started getting super, super busy. and. My buddy didn't show up to work one day, and then he didn't show up the next day. So I called. There was no answer. Nobody called me back. Finally, I get a call back from him, and he goes, my dad um, doesn't think you're ever going to amount to anything. And he goes, so my dad said I need to be more serious about my future, so that's why I didn't show up. Wow. And you're so a didn't partner in a business? Yeah. Didn't well, he, serious, he, didn't, he didn't give any money or anything. Um, I said, you know, you want to come in and do yeah. this thing with me and hopefully grow it and so I thought that was a really bad decision on his part, especially mm-hmm. today now. it's yeah. definitely a bad decision on his part. So he never showed up again, so I, I found other people to work for me. But in 1978, I opened Reflections on Canvas, and by 1981, I had three major art galleries in the New Jersey area. Yeah. We were carrying a lot of Erte's work. Mm-hmm. Um, we bought a lot of work through... Chalk and vermilion through mm-hmm. Circle Fine Art, and we were the biggest tri-state seller of Erté's work yeah. back there in the in the early 80s. Yeah, and in think. your 20s, doing yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, yeah. just crazy. You know, but what made it really successful is that I always, always didn't go out on the limb, but I was never afraid to spend the money that I had made for the company to put it back into advertising. Mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of money bringing people in, you know, like I have a one, one woman show with Susan Rios, and back then you had to guarantee the publisher like 15 grand, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of money, but every single show I did, I realized the, um, the value of having the artist there in person, like you guys do today. Mm-hmm. You know, having me here on the ship with the clients is mm-hmm. invaluable. So I learned, the importance of having an artist at an event. Mm-hmm. So we did probably six to eight major art shows a year with as popular as an artist as I could afford to get at my gallery, mm-hmm. and built up a crazy following mm-hmm. um, through my galleries, all three of them. And you were painting at the same time, making your own art? Yeah, I was kind of dabbling with it. uh, And then you started introducing it into your gallery. I did, yes. 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 But I was, you know, like yourself, I was playing drums a lot, Mm -hmm. too, at the time. I had a band through the 70s through high school with my brother Dallas. We had a band called Flight, and uh, we played all around the entire area. We played at a lot of colleges and schools and uh, fairs and things like that. And then I got into a uh, country rock band called Crossfire, we played a lot of uh, Leonard Skinner mm-hmm. and Marshall Tucker and all the stuff that was super popular at the time. And we were playing three nights a week. You know, mm-hmm. you know we weren't making a ton—150, 200 bucks a person. Yeah. You know, which back in those days, was it wasn't yet. too bad. Yeah. You know, like a big night for us. I think the most we got paid back then was a grand, mm-hmm. and that was a big gig for us back in the in the mid '80s. But I love that, and I still right. I still love playing drums. That's my. I don't know if that's my first love or second love, because that came before. I had success as a drummer prior to being an artist, but art, I felt, was going to take me further in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I Good thought, choice. Yeah, I, th- I feel yeah. that when I'm, you know, hopefully make it to my 80s or something, I'll still have a paintbrush in my hand or like, Renoir tape to my hand yeah. or something, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> so you started putting your own work into the gallery. And yep. you experimented
1: with lots of different styles, right? Yeah, I, I just... Um, back, in, back in the 80s, I didn't know what direction I wanted to go if I was going to be an artist, so I, I took prints out of the rack that I was selling in the, in the studio, and, you know, Maxwell Parrish and Norman Rockwell and all these different types of art. I remember doing some Cubist pieces, which were really fun. Uh, I did some architectural pieces. And every time I tried to do cubism or abstract, abstract, I think, paintings, it's a different mindset than what I do. Um, Because I see some abstract pieces that I'm like, wow, it's really nice. I really connect with them. Even though I think it's real easy to paint, that it would be easy to paint, that it looks like it would be easy. But then when I attempted it, it wasn't as easy as I thought. Because there's abstract artists that paint things, they just splash things on there and then, a pretty some of those paintings are pretty wow you know and i didn't feel that when i was doing it i didn't make a connection with those mm-hmm. um, um so what i started doing is i started trying all these different ty- types of art and i put them in my gallery and i actually changed my name to escotite escotite was my first name scott and i phonetically broke it up mm-hmm. escotite I added a e after each of the Ts and a little hyphen on the end, and I borrowed that from Arte. Or the accent on the end. <laughs> a little end. accent, yes. Yeah. And I, I signed my e exactly like Arte did on his signature, <laughs> so it was a variation of Arte's signature. Escotite.
0: You, you had some of those paintings still. Oh yeah, you yeah. yeah. I haven't. Yeah. You
1: sold, yeah. You sold everyone you ever had. Yeah. at Young yeah. Park West. But did you ever
0: come upon them anywhere?
1: I like, haven't yeah. seen one in years yeah. now. I still have, I still have a few, a few rolled up. Uh-huh. Yeah, just yeah. to have them from my yeah. archives. Yeah. But the reason I did that was because when people came in my gallery, I wanted their honest opinion. You know, you know, if it was you and you came in the gallery and you knew I was the owner, saw my name, you'd probably say something nice. Or maybe, you know, actually. <laughs> For me, probably not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be critical, which I appreciate. And that's what I needed. I needed to hear honest, you know, I, I needed to hear people's honest opinions about my work. And, you know, sometimes people are brutally honest, especially if they don't realize you're the artist. Mm-hmm. But that's what, is I, a good thing? Yeah. that's what I needed to hear. I didn't want anybody to blow smoke because it doesn't do any injustice if somebody's saying something is great, but they really think you could improve in mm-hmm. a certain way. So I, I, I took all those uh, comments over the years. That's and, very clever, by the way, to do that. Yeah, I painted mm-hmm. under Esco Tita mm-hmm. till 1992. Mm-hmm. You know, I did that for a long time. So all the... Uh, uh, all the paintings back then, there's a lot of people that have the, uh, the Escotite paintings that don't know that I've I've made it, you know, as an artist, popular around the world. And uh, they have these paintings, Escotite, maybe they're under the bed, maybe they threw them out, maybe they don't even know. Uh, but the people that have found out, I've had people actually fly from New Jersey, because a lot of them were sold in New Jersey, and they come to California with them, and they say, can you sign your can real you sign name? Your other name? Yeah, yeah sign your know. other name next to it. So I've, I've done that quite a few <laughs> times, which is kind of fun. That's very cool for them. Yeah. yeah. But I did, you know, I, I, I painted all kinds of things. I tried, uh, another artist that was real popular at the time was Patrick Nagel. You know, who did the white skin kabuki, yes, uh, call it yeah. kabuki style, very stylized, paints, paints, very stylized uh, white skin, fashion and, oriented a little yeah. bit too. Yeah, he died in uh, 1984. He died young. Yeah, um, I did that style of Nagel up till I think about it must have been about 89. I think 89 or 90, and I did really well with it. But what I did was I I did people's portraits in that style. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could come in and. I'd do a portrait of you or Marianne in, in the Nagel style, and I did really well with that. And then I needed to make it my own, so I started making them with um, flesh tones. More natural colors. More natural colors, and I changed it up that way. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting more realistic with you three-dimensionality, know, three, three dimensionality. So, and I started changing the hair into multicolor hair rather than just black with some white highlights in it, things like that. So I started to transition into more realistic portraits. And it went really well. I've got, you know, I, I had a lot of, like my, my father-in-law says I have the Midas touch. I think it's just that I made, I made a lot of opportunity for myself. I went out of my way to try to connect with the right people and not be in their face, but make myself available to people. So I had met, um, uh, Kathy Ireland. I had gone into a gallery, a friend of mine owned in uh, Santa Barbara, and there's all these photos of Kathy Ireland on the on the table, on his framing table. And I said, "What are you, a Kathy Ireland fan or something?" He goes, "Oh no, she's one of the people. She lives here in uh, Montecito, California." And he said, "She brought all these in for framing." And I said, "You know, I'm doing all these portraits right now. I'm looking for some bigger names to do portraits for." I said, can you show her my work? I had this brochure, it said Escotite across the top, and it had, like, four of these, you know, real simple portraits. I mean, I think about how simple they were back then compared to today. What you do today, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so I laid it on. I wrote a little note to her saying I'd love to do a portrait of her, and then later on that day, I got a call from Kathy Ireland, and she said, yeah, I'd love to have a portrait. So I drove back up there from San Diego, and I photographed her, and I did a portrait of her. And when it was done, I went up and we took pictures together. And she goes, I've got some other friends I think might want a portrait. So one of her friends was a, a girl named Kim Alexis, who was a very popular model at the time as well. So I did one for Kim Alexis. And then Kim goes, oh, you know we would love one of these? Joan London. Joan London from Good Morning America. She's, uh, she's actually looking for an artist to do a portrait. And at that time, I was making that transition from... The white skin into realistic, and so Joan London. I met with her. I went to the set of Good Morning America on ABC in New York City, and I patiently waited in the green room. I had gone to um, you know the Joan London thing, and I was in that green room meeting everybody. And then I met Joan afterwards, and she was a sweetheart. She was freaking awesome. She um, she had me wait for her until the show was done, and then I went in her car. Uh, her Mercedes, and we drove out to Mamaroneck, New York, where her house was. And so we go out to her um, to her house, and I'm I'm getting ready to photograph her in the backyard. And she goes, "Oh, pick pick out some earrings for me. They're in the drawer in my in my bedroom." And I'm like, okay, where's your bedroom? She she says, oh, it's the first door. So I go in there. I I just met this woman. Mm-hmm. She's, and she's in her bedroom. Yeah, she, yeah. Goes, she goes, go inside. So I, I'm in her bedroom, and I go in the top drawer, and I'm, I don't know where. There's no earrings in there. Mm-hmm. And so I go back down. I said, John, I must be in the wrong room. And she says oh no, I'm oh, sorry, it's the second floor. I was like, I was on the second floor. She goes, no, the second floor of the closet. Oh, the second
0: floor of the closet. <laughs> and so I'm like,
1: so I go, I go around the corner in the closet and there's a staircase <laughs> and they had taken the loft above and turned the attic into an extension of her, um, of her closet. So I go up there and the top drawer's got hundreds and hundreds of Types of earrings that are given to her all the time, and they said that uh, they don't want her to wear the same ones twice. Mm-hmm. So I went there, picked the earrings down, and photographed her on the, in the backyard. Long story short, ended up doing uh, three paintings of hers. Nice, you know, for her. One in her backyard on the bench, and then two in front of a brick wall. One was for her husband Michael at the time, Michael Kraus, I think his name was. Uh, one was for his office. One was for their home, and then one was for Joan personally. Mm-hmm. And then they got divorced a couple years later, and Michael sent the one back to me. Mm -hmm. So I have one of them. Mm -hmm. I called Joan. I said, your ex-husband sent back the painting of you. I said, would you like me to pack it up and send it back to you? And she goes, no, I don't want anything that he's ever had. (laughs) So I have one of Joan's paintings that she painted, rolled up in a tube for, I don't know, 25 years. Nice piece for for your archives. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So out of all the celebrities that I've worked with over the years, she was one of the coolest people I yeah. ever met. You know, it was yeah. really neat. So Malcolm Forbes. Malcolm Forbes. Story. That was um, that was one of those things where I I made the opportunity happen. Uh, there's an artist that I really love named uh, Doug Webb, Doug Doug W E B B, and that's where I got the idea of Esco too. Mm-hmm. We used to call him b B. <laughs> So he used to call me Esco t and that's turned into Esco T. But um, I was talking to Doug one day, and um, the name Malcolm Forbes came up, and he had told me that he was doing a art show at one time, and that Malcolm Forbes had come in. Doug wasn't there at the time, and he had asked the gallery owner if Doug would do a commission. And the art gallery owner said, no, Doug doesn't do any commissions. And so I asked Doug, I said, do you do commissions? Would you do a commission for Malcolm Forbes? He goes, oh, in a heartbeat. I'm like, hmm. Okay, so I'm living in New Jersey. I know Malcolm Forbes lives in New Jersey. So I try to see where Malcolm Forbes lives. So I start checking around and I find out he lives in Far Hills, New Jersey. So I go to Far Hills, New Jersey. I go to the general store. It's this little town. I said. I'm trying to find Malcolm Forbes' house. And then somebody said, Well, I think he's over on this road over there. So I go down this dirt road and I start driving around. I don't I can't find what, what they were talking about. So I asked this gentleman that's walking his dog along this dirt road, I said, I'm trying to find Malcolm Forbes' house. And the guy goes, Oh, you're you're almost there. It's just, you know, two more driveways down on the left. You go in and it's right there. So I drive down. I go through. There's a little guard house. There's nobody in it. I go over to this beautiful white farmhouse on this big, huge property. And I go up to the door, the front door. Nobody answers. I go around the side. I knock on the door, and Kip, his son Kip, was there and answered. And he says, oh, my dad's in Fiji on vacation, and he's due back tomorrow. And so what I'd done was I brought a brochure on Doug Webb and a little letter saying, I understand in the the past that you wanted a commission by Doug Webb, and that, uh, here's some information, contact me, and let me know if you're still interested in it, because he'd love to do one for you. So, the weirdest thing, next day, I go to pick my parents up, they're coming back from Hawaii, and on the plane, in front of them, is Malcolm Forbes walking off the plane. Mm, crazy. So, yeah, I was just at his house Jeez. the day before, and there's Malcolm Forbes walking off in front of my parents. Wow. And I said, you know, and that was the time where you could go up to the gate. Right to the gate. You yeah. could go right to the gate. And this is at Newark Airport. And so I'm walking with my parents. I was like, I said, that's, that's the billionaire. That's uh, Malcolm Forbes in front of you. My dad's like, who? I said, Forbes Magazine. My dad never read Forbes Magazine, but I knew who Malcolm was. So we get to the, um, the luggage thing. And I go over to Malcolm. He's there with the driver that picked him up in this four-door Lamborghini that was outside. And so I'm talking to Malcolm, and I introduced myself, and I said, yeah, it was just at your house yesterday, <laughs> and I left some information in your kitchen on the table. <laughs> but I'm not stalking you. <laughs> and, he, and he's looking at me like, who are you, man? And I said, you know, I told him I, I, told him I, I was uh, representing Doug Webb, and that if he was interested, you know, give me a call. And so a couple days later, he called. He lined up a commission. Um, we flew to Fort Lauderdale, where his uh, yacht was, the Highlander. And it was a painting of the Highlander yacht inside of a sink on the Highlander. And so that's how I met him originally. And then I mentioned to him that I was doing these portraits, and I thought he'd be great for my portfolio. And so I did a photograph of him in front of the helicopter, which was sitting on the yacht when I was there. Mm -hmm. And I did that portrait. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of hit it off. Twice a year, he did a motorcycle event at his estate. He would have... uh, got all kinds of celebrities there from, uh, God, what was her name, Richard Burton's ex-wife. Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor was there a couple times. Uh, I brought the guys in Bon Jovi one time. Uh, Brooke Shields would be there. And it was basically an appreciation party for the people that advertised in Forbes magazine. So a lot of executives from Harley Davidson. He had Harley Davidson's on his boat. He had two of them. So you'd have a great breakfast We'd all get on our motorcycles and I, I came as what he called a stud. I would be somebody that would come to the event with my own bike and I would ride one of the executives, somebody that needed a ride, one of the women. It was women every time I rode. And uh, we would go out to uh, usually Pennsylvania along the Delaware River. We'd stop in some place that he would have rented out for the day and we would have a really nice lunch and we'd ride back and then we'd have a big dinner and a band would play and it was just a beautiful event. I was doing those portraits for a long time, and uh, the reason I tried to transition out of that is there wasn't a lot of, um, what would I call, areas to sell those. Sure, there wasn't many many opportunities. There's no opportunities. There weren't avenues for other people's portraits. Yeah. Yeah. So I I was doing, I I did one for Madonna uh, when she was doing her Vogue um, song in 1990. I did Paulina Poroskova's, I did uh, Joan Chen, Tia Carrere. Michelle Pfeiffer and Michelle Pfeiffer's I did and I loved her portrait and then I flew all the way to LA with my dad to give it to her but um and I'm getting sidetracked now where was I going from there oh we had Malcolm Forbes and the portraits and oh. you, you did. yeah that, so uh, yeah. basically you know there's not a lot of not a lot of things you can do with a portrait of Malcolm Forbes yeah except have him hang it right and and put it in or, your portfolio. Yeah, and yeah. having your portfolio. And to your, your uh, my resume. My accolades, my yeah. resume. Mm-hmm. So I needed to do things that were going to touch more people, that were more, I guess you'd call more commercial. So I, I started painting cars and things like that. And then a couple... Oh, you painted what you are interested in. Yeah. You things you liked. Yeah. yeah which it's, you still do today. Yeah, I do. Yeah. A lot of things and... Apparently, other people like the same things I do, which is a good thing. (laughs) The good things in life. Exactly. So I started painting cars and things like that. And then uh, a guy that was working uh, with me, selling me a lot of art from one of the other publishers, we were on the phone one day, and he said that over the weekend, he had gone through the uh, Topanga Canyon over there in uh, the Woodley Hills area. And he said that he went by this place called The Rock Shop. And there was just hundreds and hundreds of Harleys there everywhere. And he goes, bikes are so popular, I don't know of anybody who's really doing bike paintings. And so he goes, maybe you should start painting some Harley pieces. And uh, there's a guy named Ron Koppel, who I'm still friends with today. I've, been, I've known him about, about 30 years now. And so I tried it. I started uh, looking in books and things like that and found some reference shots of Harleys because I didn't have one at the time. And so I did two paintings. I did one called Fat Boy, which was a 1990 Fat Boy, and I did a piece called Live to Ride, which was a 1989 Harley Davidson. And one of them was simple stock colors, and the other one was an intricate custom paint job piece. And these close-ups? They they were close-ups, yeah. Early early on with the Harley pieces, I did mostly sections of motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So I I would do, I would pick like just the tank, a little piece of engine, Mm -hmm. or just a painting just about the engine itself whatever I thought was an interesting angle of the motorcycle. And would you say these were the first examples of your true photorealist style? Or were you um, before, no, like because that, the, before prior to that um, I was doing some, a lot of car cars, pieces yeah. and, the, mm-hmm. and the cars were pretty photorealistic. Mm-hmm. But the, the motorcycles took me to another level. Mm-hmm. Um, it was totally different, I mean, because all the car pieces, you're, pa- you're painting mostly panels. Mm-hmm. And you're painting, you know, tires and wheels and things like that and, you know, reflections off of uh, windshields. But when it comes to motorcycles, now you're painting spokes. You're painting nuts and bolts and all these intricate little things that I didn't really know a lot about. So I really had to study my reference as far as, you know, getting in there and make sure all the nuts and bolts were correct and, and things like that. Because if I was going to paint motorcycles and somebody was a purist and I made a mistake on the engine, I left the part out, it'd be pretty obvious to somebody that was really into bikes. So I tried to become um, very accurate with what I did. So the the motorcycle paintings from the beginning were actually much tighter than any car painting I had ever done. I still actually have the painting. So I've had it, and I've enjoyed it, and I have a plaque on it now at the gallery so people can see. Because Live to Ride became the the first piece of public uh, art for Harley-Davidson, meaning that it was published into right. a limited edition print. Uh-huh. So, talk about the Harley yeah. licensing, because this is where it, it really emerges. Yeah, so I did, I did the two pieces, the Live to Ride and the Fat Boy, and I brought them to the Art Expo in New York City at the Jacob Javits Center, and I'd put them on display. In those days, that was a huge convention it for was, artists and publishers.
0: Yeah, yeah, It was huge. People, first dealers would come the first day and see all the booths of all the publishers that were distributing prints, and then the public would be allowed in the next couple yeah, of days. Yep. Yeah,
1: So what I did was, the um, the company that I bought a lot of art from was uh, Segal Fine Art at the time. So they had this massive booth in a great location. So I called up uh, Ron Siegel and I asked him, I said... Uh, I've got these Harley pieces that I just want to see what people think about. I said, can you rent me just one wall or two walls out of your gigantic location? Because I'd get really good location because of where you was. And he agreed to it. So I I rented uh, two walls. They were probably eight feet, maybe ten feet high. And then I brought a painting that I was working on. And I had a piece there and then these two finished paintings that were framed on the wall. And I just had a little sign underneath that said new release, meaning I was going to do prints of these things. And within the first day, I get I get a, a guy comes over to me. He's from the Beanstalk Group. The Beanstalk Group was the licensing arm for Harley-Davidson. And they were in New York. And they came through and they said, you can't do this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you're these are licensed trademark images and all the nomenclature on the tanks and everything are, are copyrighted. And he says, you would need permission from the motor company to do this. And I said, well, these are original paintings. He goes, yeah, but you're going to do prints of them. I was like, well, I want to do prints of them. They said, well, you can. And so uh, I said, well, how do I get around that? And he said, well, you would have to be licensed by the motor company. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And they said, well, you're we don't license artwork. Was one of the things they said, and they said, "And you're too small, a single artist. We wouldn't, we wouldn't license an artist by himself because you need a company behind you. You need a distribution center because if we license somebody, we need like a factory basically doing this stuff." And so I figured that was the end of my Harley career at the time. But over that weekend, the reaction to my motorcycle art was one of the talks of the entire show. Mm-hmm. And then sequel Fine Art had seen the reaction to my art too. He was getting more attention on my three motorcycle pieces that were there than his in, the rest of his entire huge booth that he had. And he had forty booths there. Wow! And so I, I did, um, I did, I kept doing it, even though Harley said not to do it. And then I did a uh, a show in. Uh, well, <laughs> I love doing it, but because I, I found out as an artist you could do originals. You do paintings. Yeah, you can right. do paintings, so and it's just a matter. of... Yeah, exactly. Right. So I kept doing the paintings, and I was selling them. Uh, there was a gallery in Palm Springs that wanted to carry them. And they sold, they sold the early ones that I did pretty quickly. And so I did the Art Expo in L.A., and that same freaking group of guys were there mm-hmm. in L.A. I guess they were looking yeah. for yeah. something. They handled they they not only took care of Harley Davidson, but a lot of other companies. So they were trying to you know make sure everything was in check. And so they came over to me again, but this time they were with Jeff Bluestein, who was the president of Harley Davidson at the time. And apparently they had told Jeff about my art and what I was doing, because shortly after L.A., or after New York, I got a cease and desist letter in the mail from Harley Motor Company, from one of their lawyers. And as a young artist, that's that's a pretty nasty thing to the get in the mail. I'm like, yeah. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have money for a dire yeah. lawyer. I can't yeah. fight Harley Davidson. Um, so here I'm out in L.A., and I, I'm waiting for the next level. I'm waiting to get arrested or thrown in jail or something. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> so these guys tell me, oh, yeah, they're telling Jeff that this is the guy we were talking about. And Jeff goes, well, his stuff's really nice. Maybe we should work something out. So I, I talked to Jeff. He was very nice. And they said, well, if we could work out a, a deal with you, it would be like 18 months because a licensing agreement is a pretty big agreement. And they, they kind of shrunk the agreement to a small agreement. And in 90 days later, they said I'd have it. Within you, know, th- you know, three months, I'd have a contract. And sure enough, about uh, six, seven weeks later, I got a contract in the mail that was fully executed by them, signed by them. I had to sign uh, the copies and send them back. And then they would send me another one back that was stamped. And that was a pretty amazing day. So I now, heard. I've got their rubber stamp. But I didn't really have the money to publish art. or I didn't know how to distribute it at the time. I had my own galleries and things like that. So I had a certain amount of clients that I could sell it to. But I really needed to get into the, the Harley network. They, they furnished me with all the names of all the Harley dealers around the world. And it was like 3,000 at the time. And so what Harley-Davidson suggested I do was to find a bigger company to work with that could buy that could have the the actual contract with me so i talked to sequel fine art and his uh, first reaction was who's going to hang motorcycle art on the wall and i said i got the list of all the harley dealers and everything like that and um so i convinced him to give it a shot for two years because my first contract was for two years and you know that first piece we brought out live to ride sold out in five weeks mm. Wow. You know, so he's like, oh, wow, you need to do another one. Yeah, so I did another one, and, you know, the second one wasn't uh, didn't sell out as quick because it wasn't, you know, new candy on the shelf. Um, so it slowly built, and uh, we started doing it. And, man, I, th- I think the, the most important part was when they commissioned me for their 100th anniversary in 2003 to do a cover piece for the Enthusiast magazine. Uh, the Enthusiast magazine was a, a magazine... That Harley Davidson published since the nineteen twenties, mm. it went to all the Harley Davidson owners in the world, and it was it was shipped to the owners. Like when you bought a new bike, you registered, you got that magazine, mm-hmm. so it was shipped to people all over the world. Oh. And in their history, they had never used a piece of art on the cover. Always a photo. Always a photo. Yeah, yeah. So in two thousand and three, for their hundredth anniversary, mm-hmm. the first piece of art ever appeared on yeah. their cover yeah. was yeah. one of my paintings. I remember the painting. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, we sold
0: it for years. Did? Ago. Yeah, yep. it was a giant painting. Giant painting. Yeah, gorgeous. The building. Yeah, in in Milwaukee, right? Uh, yeah, actually,
1: yeah. the one that was on the first cover was the one of Sharon jumping up with the flags, uh, and yeah. the and the Harley Davidson uh, racing the uh-huh. the other one. You're yeah. you're referring to, uh, for the hundredth, I did three paintings. Okay, for Harley Davidson uh-huh. for the hundredth, one yeah. appeared on the cover. And the other two were the official art for the 100th. Yeah, they're fantastic paintings. Both of them are amazing. One of them I want so bad. Uh, One one of the ones that Harley has in their museum Mm is called uh, 100 Great Years. Mm -hmm. And it was a a really difficult painting for me to do. Uh, They brought me to the archives in Milwaukee, and they pulled out seven of the most important motorcycles in their first 100 years. Mm -hmm. And what I needed to do is because uh, they wanted just a photo, photographic, in-your-face painting, super, super detailed. So they had um, seven bikes. They started out with the first bike, which was a 2003 Harley Davidson, and then we did a, a 2000, or I mean, not a 2003, a 1903, and then a 15, then a 23, then a 36, and 81. Uh, all the different, all the different um, changes. The changes of the tanks, mm-hmm. the changes of the engines, the ta- changing of the nomenclature on the actual bikes themselves. And you wanted one painting with all they these, wanted one painting. You know, all these bikes featured, yeah. like, so evo- I lined evolution. them all up. Yeah, uh-huh. like you know, it was an evolution. Yeah. Correct mm-hmm. of the bikes to show the evolution of the engines, mm-hmm. the evolution of the tanks, the evolution of the uh, the logos and things on there, and it was tough. What a cool idea, though. It was really tough. Yeah. So on and the the way the bikes were facing, the front tires were to the right. And in 1903, on the first Harley Davidson, the logo, the Harley Davidson name, was only on the left side of the bike. So originally, the painting, if you had a 1903 in it, would have had a black tank at the top, because there's no title on it. So they decided, why don't you do a 1905? Because the 1905 didn't change, except for they added the logo on the other side of the tank. Uh So we actually had a contest on that Asking what what years of the bikes in this painting, <laughs> everybody got it wrong because everybody thought the first 1903. one was in nineteen oh three and it was in nineteen oh five, so that was kind of cool. But it, so I did this painting. It was uh, the most detailed painting I had done to date. It was about three feet by five and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. and at the time I had a, um, I had a, a small uh, studio that only had eight foot ceilings, so. At the last part of the painting, the last few weeks of the painting, I did on my knees on the floor. Wow. Because I took the painting and I pushed it up That's to the a, height. You couldn't go any higher than eight feet? Yeah, yeah, so the yeah. bottom part of it, I had yeah. like a chair. You know, I could do like the bottom, you mm. know, quarter of it. But the very bottom of the painting, I actually kneeled on the floor and painted Jeez. it. Which was kind of <laughs> kind of neat. Painful. Yeah. <laughs> and The then, dedication uh, to your work right yeah, there, huh? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sacrifice. I'm hoping one day that maybe Harley-Davidson would sell me that painting back because i want it so bad i love that painting one of the most detailed things i've ever done in my life was that painting 100 great years
0: so then you started rolling out lots of other products for harley
1: actually prior to that prior to that really yeah Uh yeah back in uh i think the first deals i did were probably 94 Mm -hmm. you know so um which I didn't know much about licensing at the time, until different companies started contacting me. We've had uh, playing cards. Back in 1998, I did a series of collector plates for the Franklin Frank Mint. And, yeah. and one of the plates alone sold 5.2 million plates, which wow. outsold Elvis. Wow. So I was their top-selling plate guy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we did puzzles. A whole bunch of puzzles, like 30, 40 different puzzles for Ravensburg Schmidt out of Germany, which is the biggest toy company in the world. We did uh, pocket watches, collector coins, uh, mugs, beer steins, I mean, on and on and on. I've, mm-hmm. I've had my own clothing line through Harley Davidson for twenty-something years, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing because it's got my my signatures on the sleeve of the shirt, and then it's got one of my images on it, and my signatures across the front. You know, so it's it, even though it's a Harley Davidson shirt, they branded it with my signature in two mm-hmm. places on them all, and we've sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those worldwide. We've got silk shirts through Tory Richard where the the images are embroidered on the back a lot of different things and it, it's fun just to work you know walking around anywhere in the world seeing stuff seeing my yeah. shirt my signature and that's
0: so cool so how many products do you think you have for harley yeah Any you idea? know i'm sure there's so a, more than a thousand
1: oh, God, oh, more than they're a thousand. everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the stuff's everywhere and yeah. it's um it's it's pretty overwhelming yeah. you know at times and you yeah. know thinking about all of it it's awesome You know, sitting around doing a puzzle of one of your paintings, which is unfair to everybody else because I know where where everything goes. I know where everything goes. (laughs) It takes everybody like, oh, how did you know where that goes? Well, because I spent three months painting it. I remember that brush stroke. It's kind of fun. (laughs) And so what was the next big contract after that? Uh, Well, Harley was 93, and then the next thing was 97. Um, Got contacted by uh, Chevrolet, Chevrolet Motor Company. Uh, Their licensing arm was in uh, La Jolla, California, which was convenient to me because I was living in San Diego myself about 20 minutes away. And I went and had a meeting with them and they wanted me to develop a fine art line of paintings for the Corvette, specifically the mid-year, so from 1963 to 1967. So uh, the first one I did was a piece called Eeny Meeny, which had four 1967 big blocks all lined up in a row, and they used that for their parts and accessories catalog uh, for Chevrolet and then also for what was called the Mid-America Catalog, which was uh, Mike Yeager, this guy owned this huge parts and accessories catalog, was the cover piece for that. And then they made it uh, available through their, their dealers worldwide. And it was also on, through a company called Corvette Central, which was a, uh, a not an online, but a you know, catalog company. You could order art and you, you know, it's mostly about parts and things like that. So I did that, and I'm still doing that today. So I've been, I've been doing pieces for them. I usually do two a year now for mm-hmm. them. And I'm still sticking with those uh, mid-year cars. Uh, been doing it, uh, what was that, 21 years now. Wow. And also that, that same year, I got, and I don't even know how these things happen. I guess it's just the exposure that Harley Davidson got me as an artist. But the same year, I got contacted by Mattel Toys in El Segundo, California a guy named Bob McCandlish contacted me to to develop a series of paintings working with Kyle Petty, uh, Richard Petty's son, that just had gotten picked up by Mattel Toys. They were sponsoring the NASCAR, and so I worked with him. And th- that was that was exciting for me at the time, but the print program wasn't, um, wasn't a big moneymaker for me. So um, I did that just for two years, and I stopped doing it in 99. Uh, and then what was, that, what was next after that? After that was, uh, at the suggestion of my wife, sorta, Um, we were decorating our house, or changing the art around at our house in San Diego, and if you went into my home there in Rancho Santa Fe, which you've been to before, my art was everywhere, through the game room, through the living room my wife didn't want motorcycle art in the dining room so she had said she was downtown san diego at a a furniture store called the z gallery and she saw some old school wine pieces and she wanted to get a couple of them put them in the dining room and i said to her let me see what they look like show me a picture i said no i can do that and she goes well you'll never have time to do it you know you know, it's like the, the shoemakers. you know, kids never <laughs> have shoes. shoes. Yeah. So Sharon figured I'd never get to it. But I found time. I did. I did two paintings. I did a white wine piece, and I did a uh, red wine piece. The first one was called Delicious and the other one was, uh, uh, I forget, I'll lose track of them. Mine or Yours was the first two pieces I did. And I had gone to a local restaurant in Rancho Santa Fe. I picked out bottles that I thought had cool labels on them. I photographed them in this beautiful restaurant and did the paintings. And I said, you know, I've got this big show coming up. It's called uh, Barrett-Jackson Auto Auction. I have... Phoenix. Uh, in Scottsdale, Phoenix. Yeah. Scottsdale, yeah. And I've had a, sh- uh, a booth there since 1993 at that show. And so I went there. I said, I just want to bring these just to see what people think of these new wine pieces I'm doing. So I brought them along. The reaction to the wine pieces were phenomenal. And across the aisle from my booth was Marianne Cohen, and she was there with Gockle. Alfred Gockel. Yeah, Alfred Gockel was there in the booth with her, and they had a lot of the art. She had some Picassos and things like that, Mm -hmm. and Marianne had observed the reaction of people to my work during that week-long show, and at the end of it she said that she was kind of like a talent scout for Mm -hmm. uh, Park West Gallery at the time, and she said, we're currently looking for somebody that could do some nice wine pieces, and we think you might be right. And so she talked to me, and over the next 18 months, we negotiated a deal with uh, Park West, mm-hmm. and that was uh, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I started working with Park West in 94, I think it was. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, 94. So that was the beginning of the wine series. That's where me. the wine series started, because and Sharon wanted somebody else's wine in my, in my house, <laughs> and I didn't want it to happen. <laughs> that will not hang in my house. <laughs>
0: Um, and then the Marilyn Monroe Elvis...
1: Yeah that, was, um, yeah, that was the suggestion of one of the collectors, actually, was Marilyn. And um, being that I was um, careful about getting sued by a company, um, somebody suggested I do Marilyn Monroe wine pieces. I didn't know the bottles existed, but apparently these bottles had been made since 1994 uh, by Nova Winery out of California... And somebody sent me a box with like five different ones of them. They said these would be really cool in a painting. So I photographed a few of them. I did a couple pieces. And then I figured, you know, if I'm going to do prints of this, I probably should ask permission. <laughs> so I, I, I researched. I found out uh, who who was uh, taking care of the estate. I contacted them. They loved what I was doing. Uh, so I got licensed by the, the Marilyn Monroe estate. And then about i don't know it was less than a year later i get contacted from elvis presley's estate <laughs> i didn't call them and they're like we got a guy and they and then they started trying to convince me on the telephone that um i would sell well, way more of elvis presley wine pieces than i would the Marilyn monroe <laughs> and so i started doing the elvis presley pieces i got licensed by epe elvis presley enterprises and the Marilyn's so better than Elvis, <laughs> by far. I mean, I love Elvis, too, but uh, I think that Marilyn on the bottles is a lot prettier. Something romantic about it. Exactly, yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I still I still do both. I don't do them as much um, as I used to because I've got so many other things. So, going yeah. on. Yeah.
0: How did you get from uh, New Jersey to California? What precipitated that move? Weather. Really? <laughs> yeah. Literally, you're just like, I'm done with
1: winter, and I want Oh, my to get God. Out. It yeah. was like 19... You got married in, in New Jersey, though, right? I got married in Belgium. But I mean, you were living. In I New was Jersey, living though, in right? New Jersey at the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Sharon and I got married in uh, outside of Waterloo, Belgium, uh-huh. 1985, um, in an old cathedral of ruins of an old cathedral. It was I remember pretty, seeing pretty some amazing. photographs of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's and, pretty cool. And, and when were the girls born? Olivia was born in 1990. Alexa, 1991. Uh-huh. And uh, we decided at that point, two kids was enough. You know, because when you got two perfect daughters, who needs anything else, right? <laughs>
0: they are perfect, too.
1: I wanted, I wanted girls. It was weird, because I remember when uh, Sharon was pregnant with the girls, and you know, she goes, we got to think of names. And I was like, well, you know, I, I wanted a girl. I had this dream a long time ago, and it was always with a daughter. Anytime I had a dream about having a kid, I never had a dream about a boy. And I said we're gonna have girls. If we have kids, we're gonna have girls. And she goes, "No, you can't guarantee that." And we didn't want to know what kind of kid we were having, mm-hmm. so we waited till they popped out. And sure enough, we had two girls. Two girls so within yeah. a year of each other, about a yeah. year apart, right? Yeah. 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 So
0: you moved the family out to the girls were born in California. They were, uh, yeah. They're both
1: born. Let's see, were they in New Jersey at all? Oh yeah, yeah. Livy was born in New Jersey. And, oh yeah, they're both born in New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, then I think we moved. So Alexa was four years old mm-hmm. when we moved. So Olivia would have been almost six when okay. we moved to California. Mm-hmm. And it was a, I got to the point where I just couldn't take the weather anymore in the winter. I had a two and a half acre place, and I had probably seventy-five gigantic oak trees on the property. Front yard was an acre. So in the fall, I spent my freaking weekend. Cutting the grass, cleaning up the leaves, Breaking. and then I had this big, long spiral, or not spiral, but circular driveway that came up to the house, and then another long driveway that went up the end of the property and had a big parking lot in front of the garages. And so in the winter, I spent so much time doing the snow, and in the summer I was cutting grass on a tractor, and the weed whacker on all the trees. I was going freaking nuts. Mm-hmm. And this two winters in a row, it was I guess it was 94, 95... Like, I remember one snowstorm was three feet, and then a couple days later, two inches of frozen rain on top of it, so you could walk on top of the three feet of snow. And then a couple days later, another 18 inches of snow. I was stranded at my house. I couldn't even get out of my driveway for about five days. And I was like, I'm done with this. I just want some warm weather. And then Sharon's dad had lived in, had moved from Michigan to, uh, to San Diego, and we had gone out there quite a few times and we decided we're just going to pack up, we're going to move. We moved in with him for about a month until we found a house to move into, and we we picked Rancho Santa Fe, California. We weren't sure if we were going to like it, so we actually rented our home out in California, I mean in um, New Jersey, and we lived in a house in California. We rented it for the first year, and we liked it but weren't certain, so we rented it for another year, so we rented it for two years, and then we decided we were going to stay. So we sold our house in New Jersey and bought a home, the home that you saw.
0: Speaking of your daughters, I think it's a good way to segue into The Secret Millionaire because that's a pretty amazing story in your life as well, According yeah. the chapter. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh,
1: 2012. This is um, a
0: TV show on ABC, in case our listeners are familiar with it, where mm-hmm. they take a individual who's very successful and put that individual into a part of uh, society that's very challenged financially. Mm-hmm. And you check it all out, and then you write a big check at the end and, and yep. make people's lives uh, much much richer, literally and figuratively. So tell us how that came about, what that
1: experience was like for you. Well, I had um, I had seen this show once or twice, actually with Olivia and Sharon uh, one time. And I was traveling to Fort Park West, I was on the road, and I was in Chicago airport, and I was just checking my emails on my phone. And there was a uh, email in there from the casting director from Secret Millionaire. And I knew the show because I actually just had seen one of the episodes about a week prior. It was a pretty popular show. It started in Europe, very, very popular in Europe. And it was saying that um, I had been brought to their attention and they wanted to speak to me about possibly starring in the show. And at that time, I didn't know I had to give away a whole bunch of my own money. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if it was... Uh, You know, ABC was giving the people the money, and they gave it away, but it was, you know, your personal money. Well, it had to be legit. It had to be legit, yeah. So they said that they'd like to meet me, and I said, well, when is that? And they said, well, we're trying to get all the episodes for the current season finished, and we're looking for a premiere person to star on it. And they said they wanted to meet me on Monday, and this was like on a Saturday or Friday night or something like that. And I said, do you mean I get back Sunday night? I said, do you mean Monday this week? And they said, yes. So I, I Googled the names of the people that were on this email and I saw what they looked like and sure enough Monday morning they were at my, they came down from LA and they were at my front door in San Diego. We sat down for most of the day, did a very, very intensive uh, email. They really needed to know who I was and um, my daughters had walked in towards the end of the afternoon and they, um, they saw the girls and they thought that it'd be cool for one of the girls to start in the show with me, which they had never had before. Because normally was one person who goes and does it, whether it's a woman or a guy. And they had never had a uh, father-daughter team do one of their episodes. So they interviewed the girls over the next week, and they uh, we all chose Alexa, my younger daughter, because we thought that she would benefit from the experience. She was, um... Olivia was, I guess, a little more level-headed, I guess, than Alexa. Alexa was, um... I don't know, I don't want to throw her under the bus. <laughs> but um, she was one that I think expected things to be a little easier for her in life, where Olivia realized you had to work for everything that you had, and you know, like I did since I was young. And so we chose Alexa to star in the show, and it was that was a, a perfect match. And it, it's a show where um, I had no idea where we were going to go. They show up to our house. At, it was like four o'clock in the morning. We knew the day they were coming to pick us up. So, mm-hmm. so film, you, flew, you flew back out east. Yeah, The yeah, yeah. Film crew came to the front door of the house that morning. They they came in. They made us put our. They took our cell phones away from us. Uh, they took our credit cards, money, everything. So we had nothing on us. All all we had was our ID, um, driver's license, so we could get on plane. We got in a cab. And there was two film guys in the cab with us, with and then the rest of the film crew was in a, in a uh, van behind us. And we went to the airport and didn't know where we are going. They mm. were interviewing us on the way, and they asked me where I thought they were going to take me. And my first guess was New Jersey, because that's where I grew up. And so my guess was correct. I found out we were going to Newark, New Jersey, which is a very impoverished area of uh, the state. And they... They brought us, we got out, they brought us to a crack house, a boarded up old crack house in uh, Irvington, New Jersey, and they said this is your home for the next week. Inside, they didn't clean it up, it was disgusting inside. Uh, they gave us, uh, we had pots and pans and stuff like that, some utensils. We, had, we each had a cot with a you know, pillow and blanket and all that, but everything else was the way they found it. They gave us um, a guard for the front door and the back door. Film crew was huge, 30 people. Three cameras on us all the time. And they gave us what was the, uh, what was it called? They gave us $71.03 for a week. Yeah. So we had $71.03 cash. And we had to survive on that for a week, which is, I don't know how people do it. I mean, we had a place to sleep at night, and they gave us a car that had gas in it. So I didn't have to worry about gas. I didn't have to worry about shelter. So we, uh, first thing we did was we went into town, we started walking around, we went and did some shopping, and we had to really think about it. It was the first time in a long time I had to think about what to buy. How can I stretch that 70 bucks, 71 bucks out for a week? So I figured we had $10 a day for the two of us, breakfast, lunch, dinner. So we we couldn't drink water out of the faucet because it was disgusting at the particular place we were staying at, so we had to buy bottled water I remember buying a gallon of milk because Alexa wanted milk during the week and the particular place we picked, when we got back, we poured the milk out and it was in chunks, it was bad. It had gone bad. And so we wasted almost $4 on that, which was really hard. So we got Top Ramen, we got some uh, macaroni and cheese, uh, we've got peanut butter and jelly mixed in a jar together, like a three day old um, loaf of bread. Uh, things like that so we could really stretch out, you know, the money that we had. And then our our first step was to go and try to find charities to um, to help in the area. And then these are not charities like the Heart Association or anything like that. These are like mom and pop places that are doing something great for the community that nobody knows about. That don't have commercials on TV and fundraisers, you know, at uh, Madison Square Garden or something mm-hmm. like that. These are people that they're were in the trenches. They're in the yeah. trenches. Yeah doing it because they love it, and giving back to their communities and things. So uh, first place we found was um, a place called the G.I. Go Fund. And the G.I. Go Fund were these two brothers and their best friend. And one of their closest friends had uh, got killed in the war. And so they came up with this thing called the G.I. Go Fund. And the, and the whole premise behind it was for them to go around and find homeless veterans that were on the street and try to find out if they had benefits they were missing, get them off the street, get them in housing, get them food and shelter, get their hair cut and do all these great things for them. And so we went undercover with them and tried to do that. We went on what they call a, um, a stand down. A stand down was to go out in the middle of the night when everybody's sleeping on the street, look under bridges and at, you know, uh, bus stations and things like that. And we started going up to people that were you know, covered in boxes and covered under sheets and stuff, and waking people up in the middle of the night and asking them, trying to find um, veterans that were homeless. And we did find quite a few of them. That was the first charity we found. And then the second one was one called the IYO. It was called the International Youth Organization. And it was in Irvington, uh, right outside of Newark. And they were taking kids that were, off the street and teaching them how to get their GEDs, teaching them skills so they could get a job. Because all these kids were like uh, dropped out of school and they were just getting into drugs, runaways, yeah. Yeah. So the IYO had this woman, uh, Mrs. Wallace, had this this building that needed a ton of work. It was just run down. But she would have people that volunteer and, and, and teach these kids how to use computers and it was all donations. This woman was amazing that was one of the other people uh, that we helped on the show and then the third group that we helped was uh, called Glass Roots and Glass Roots was a, a glass making place it was kinda like the front was a store and they also did lessons taught people how to make uh, different kinds of glass and pottery and things like that and they would teach kids to do that after school homeless kids and people that drop down and so on so they would give give kids something to do rather than hang out on the streets and it was all donations as well so those were the three charities that we picked to help out and uh, it was it it was the most humbling amazing experience that I have ever experienced in my life Um, we gave away a quarter of a million dollars at the show and then park west i don't know if you know that albert matched all my donations mm-hmm. which was pretty amazing mm-hmm. um, and got uh, national exposure for those three small charities mm-hmm. and since a lot of people have uh, made donations to those three charities so that the show itself was is just it was awesome yeah. it's just a great premise and mm-hmm. a great idea the and, show uh, premiered for that season yeah we got chosen uh there's i think that 12 episodes each year, and uh, we got chosen as the, the premiere. Premier. Uh-huh. They said ours was the most emotional, and so they wanted to open the season with a bang. Mm-hmm. And our, our um, reaction to our show and the amount of people that watched it was so huge on the Wednesday night that they aired it again the same week on Sunday, mm-hmm. or the Saturday night, mm-hmm. which was huge. And then the uh, the show, which is still promoted around the world, not in the U.S. anymore, has it's aired to about three hundred fifty million people worldwide yeah, yeah. now, in syndication too. Yeah, it's, yeah, pr- it's yeah, pretty uh, yeah. the legs that it has. Is pretty fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, that's really fantastic. What a great
0: experience, especially for Alexa, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to Park West Galleries Behind the Artist. To learn more about Parkwest Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.